Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today, I'm joined by Eric Collins. Eric is the co-founder and CEO of Impact Eric is the co-founder and CEO of Impact X Capital, a venture capital firm raising 100 million pounds to invest in underrepresented entrepreneurs in the UK and Europe. Eric is a serial entrepreneur. He has worked with some of the biggest tech companies in the world. The Financial Times placed Eric amongst the UK's top 100 BAME leaders in tech. And he is also the host of Channel 4's award-winning reality series, The Moneymaker. Today, we're going to be talking about so many things, entrepreneurship and why now is the time to invest in black underrepresented entrepreneurs, as well as diving into Eric's first book, We Don't Need Permission, How Black Business Can Change the World. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's a privilege to be here. I've been looking forward to this conversation for so long. Uh, we spoke a little bit before we started recording and I just am so grateful for you to be here giving your time. And I really know that this conversation is going to be not only important and impactful, but hopefully shared. And I'm just yeah excited to get into it with all of my questions and to sit and listen and learn. Well, I'm happy to be here, and my apologies for keeping you before this podcast. We had a great conversation. Maybe we'll recreate some of that here, so for the listeners. Absolutely. Well, where to start? I think where I'd like to start is I talk to people a lot about mindset, about mm -hmm. individual ownership. You know, I'm an encourager. I'm a motivator. I deliver keynotes, and I will speak to people about this idea of individual ownership. And what I mean when I say that is that we have agency in our lives. We can get up every day and make a choice, whether that's what we're going to fuel our bodies with, whether that's how we're going to move our bodies, what books we're going to read, who we're going to listen to, what work we want to do, what we're going to share with the world. We do have some agency and choice in our life. And I try to encourage people as much as possible to say, what can you do? Who can you help? Who can you learn from? And how can you cultivate a mindset that is going to benefit you? Because personally, I feel like I've benefited a lot from, from doing that. However, and this is a big however, outside of our circle of influence, there are, of course, many other things, systems, structures, all sorts of different things. And when I was reading your book, I was challenging myself and kind of wrestling with some of these things and thinking, OK, which of these systems, which of these structures are going to hinder our progress? You know, we can't take away the world. We can't exist. We don't exist in isolation and say, you can do it on your own. Go for it. Because yeah, this is the world that we live in. So I'd really love to start there. I'd love to hear from you. What do you think when you hear me talk about individual ownership and mindset and, and kind of this individualistic approach to progress and an individual success? I think you've hit a very important um, concept in this idea of individual ownership. Often that I think that idea of individual ownership is tied to rugged individualism, this idea that we're lone wolves in the world and that we're out there um, making things happen. And there's so many narratives of success that 
I think when distilled and deconstructed, end up saying to people, you know, this one person made it happen. You know, Dina Asher Smith is a great athlete who's running, you know, and becoming a world champion and those sorts of things. And she's done it on her own. Whereas if we listen closely, when she, you know, finishes up her race, she thanks a lot of people, a lot of concepts, including God and other people. Maybe she does. I don't know if she actually does that. But, you know, many athletes do because this idea of being able to be a rugged individualist and make it on your own, it's, it's, it's a, it, that's the myth. Hmm. No one makes it on their own. Self-made. Yeah, self-made is not a thing. It, in my opinion, what happens is that people find around them um, avenues. They find around them allies, and those are the things that make a difference. You'll hear many, many stories about individuals who had a particular teacher. They had a particular family member. They had someone who's a friend, or they sort of saw something, and they were encouraged in that fashion. So I think the individual mindset must be questioned whether or not the in, the, the individual responsibility is certainly something I believe in, individual mindset and individual achievement. I don't know necessarily that exists. I think about myself. And I think about a young, a baby who's born in Alabama in the deep south in the United States during the time of Jim Crow, meaning that by law as well as by personal habits and societal habits, black people did not have the right to do a number of things, whether it be ride the bus, whether it be, you know, get an education, whether it be vote. And my family has been in the United States both in, as enslaved people and then free people for hundreds and hundreds of years. We know the United States and we have been members of the South and lived in the South. And I'm the first person in the hundreds of years that there were colonists who was born with the right to vote in the United States. You can think about that as being one of these sort of moments that could be a defining moment that, you know, should we stay in the fields and should we pick? Should we be sharecroppers? What should we do in those particular situations? And for me, the mindset is that I've got to do something because not doing anything is a strategy and a choice. Mm -hmm. And if I let myself spend so much time saying, what are the impediments? What are the isms, misogyny, racism that are keeping me back, classism, all of those things are true and they exist in the world. So what are we going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? Am I going to sort of spend all of my time analyzing and polishing up why that makes it impossible for me to do something? Am I going to say, I get it. I'd like to change those things and I need to take a step in this thousand step journey. So that's what I do. That's what I've been taught in the world by not just my family, not just my circumstances, but by looking around. When I think about people like you and I spoke a little bit before about Nelson Mandela and others. When I think about those sort of individuals, someone who's on Robbins Island in a prison cell for decades and, you know, comes out not bitter, but ready to change the world that affects his people. It's like that you ha that is a choice because he also could have said, well, I want to go on the speaking tour. I want to write a book like me, you know, that, that, but instead there are a number of other steps that became very, very important. And that's what he did. So from my perspective, I do believe that it's very necessary for us to question and to help people to question their own mindsets. And are there really limitations? There are certainly facts that are challenging, facts that are crippling. Absolutely. Mm. And therefore, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to sit and look at the facts and continue to talk about them? Or are we going to do something about them personally and then in a bigger sense? Because I believe in collective action. So not just lone wolf, but wolf packs, because I think they accomplish more. Yes. Well, so much in there. Firstly, I totally agree. You know, not just the lone wolf, but together, you know, uniting with others, doing things, you know, 
the greatness that, that comes in the agency of others and trusting them and building something together. But going back to my message that, you know, you can do it and I want the best for you and I want you to create this mindset that says, yes, I can achieve regardless mm -hmm. of those parameters and, and the circumstance I'm going to pursue the the goal that I have because what is the alternative? You know, what am I, if I don't do that? So when I'm saying to people and hopefully encouraging them to think of it in that way of like, what can I do? I love that I've heard you talk about investing in yourself. Mm. Now, of course, when we hear the word investing and we think about business, we think about, I would think about capital and about money and, and getting investment. But actually when you talk about investing in yourself first, you know, believing that you can do it, putting in the time, the effort, the energy, whether that's education, like how important is it for people to yeah, not only believe that they can and create a mindset, but also to start to invest in themselves. Investing in self is not a um, esoteric concept. Investing in self, in my opinion, is an execution activity. So it's not sort of imagining what I would do or what I could do. It's doing something. You imagine first where you'd like to be and you say to yourself, if I want to be there, what would I need to do in order to actually get there? But it's not just then laying out a plan and leaving it and then waiting next year and coming back to the plan and then leaving it and waiting next decade and coming back to that plan and leaving it. Instead, it's we, we start to execute against it. It doesn't require, so for me, the resources for investment are experience. You know, so all of us are getting experiences every day, some good, some bad. But the good experiences, say, of work, so that I take a job no matter how uh, menial that job is. And from that, I need to learn something. I need to learn something, not just about the job itself and sort of executing against a set of tasks, but generally it's going to be within an organization. The great thing you have is suddenly access to an organization. You're in the inside of an organization. If you were a barista at Starbucks, you are a cleaner at Nero. You have got the opportunity to actually see how are people scheduled You've got the opportunity to see how are supplies used. You've got the opportunity to see sort of how much time is spent. If it, a person like me would say, hmm, that's access of a certain type, and I can use that to invest in my future learning. And I can say, okay, now I understand that. So I understand about sort of what cleaning supplies and how long it takes me to mop a floor. Now I can take another step. And I'm going to say, so if indeed it takes me uh, you know, an hour, and there's seven of us in this building that has 20 floors in it. And so that means that there's a business that someone has that's employing seven people for 20 floors in a certain period of time. I wonder what is going on with that. And is there a possibility that indeed there are other services that go along with the cleaning services? So what about the plumbing services? What about the um, supplies that are coming into the building? That's an interesting piece. And so then you keep on sort of trying to delve deeper and deeper. You're asking questions. You have a, you have a curiosity and an inquiry. It doesn't mean you have lots of money, but it means that you're using your time, you're using your capabilities in order to get smarter. And that smarter then helps you to make a set of decisions later. Shall I do this or that? You're just trying to increase the number of options that you have, making then a conscious choice and using your agency to get to another spot. That then eventually leads to, in my opinion, and what I've seen many, many times, 
is the ability to invest sometimes actually capital because from there and that knowledge we're making different choices as to where we might go next the world doesn't just happen to us we need to actually try and make some choices about that even if we get fired which i've been fired plenty of times mm -hmm. even if we land and we have to take jobs we don't want because we don't have money i've happened to me plenty of times but that you keep on learning from those experiences and you say from this it's going to make me better at following and i'm going to do this next and then i'm going to try that next or i can try any of these seven things next but that's what i think is part of that investing and i think people spend too much time, quite frankly, focusing on getting other people's money into their idea, as opposed to executing on an idea, which will then attract other people's money, will attract other people's resources, because you are executing against something. People get very excited about helping people that are executing. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, I couldn't have, I couldn't agree with you anymore, especially on that last part around mm -hmm. going, oh, here's my idea. Who's going to help me to build it? Who's going to pay for, as you said, invest money into this? Who's going to, well, I can't start Adrienne. I can't start this business or I can't start, you know, writing my own book or starting my own podcast or starting my own because I don't have the cash or I don't have the investment. But as you said, if you start something, no matter, no matter how small, no matter just use what you have, you know, use a phone, use whatever you have. If you are already showing, as you said, the willing that you're putting in the work and also maybe you can then prove the concept, you know, you can say this is the kind of thing that I'm doing. These are the people that want it. These are the people, this is the feedback that I've had doing the work first. As you said, if you really believe that your idea is fantastic, other people are going to start to see that and then the work will speak for itself. And as you said, hopefully you'll become into a situation where you have an abundance of opportunities of people who want to get involved, who want to support, who say, hey, can I come onto your podcast? And suddenly, yeah, you realize that you have to start first and then it can't be, well, I can't because no one has yet invested in my idea. I absolutely love that. And I hope that people will hear that and, and hopefully, they can relate that to whatever it is that they're trying to do. Can I say that you you and I are going to have this sort of experience during this conversation where it's going to be, I'm going to want to say amen. <laughs> and James Baldwin wrote a book called The Amen Corner, which is about sort of churches and sort of um, enthusiastic churches, Pentecostal generally in the United States. And there's this idea of there's a person saying something and you agree with it. And so you say amen because there is a coda that you need to put on it. There's a marker that you need to put an exclamation point that says that that is, you know, an amen moment. So, amen. 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 Let's talk about hard work and mm. luck. Mm. Wow. So, again, I believe that we should all, of course, work hard and that mm. luck plays a part no matter who you are, no matter mm. if, you know, the billionaires of the world, the self-made people, the even the Olympians who are born with a God-given skill and talent, they still have to put in the work. You know, Usain Bolt, he had to put in the work even when he didn't want to and he had the luck and the gift and the stride. So, yes, we all have to work hard and yes, luck will play a part. But let's be honest, a lot of people are going to work really, really hard. And a lot of people may have some luck, some more than others, but not everyone is going to end up in the same place. And so I don't think it's fair when I say, you know, work hard and yeah, you know, you'll get there. Because I think myself, I think about my own journey and I think that for many reasons, I'm actually, you know, an outlier. So I can't just say to others, well, if I can do it, you can do it. So I'd love to hear from you, Eric. What do you think about the role that hard work and luck plays when it comes to entrepreneur success, when it comes to business, when it comes to setting a goal for yourself and then deciding I'm going to relentlessly pursue this goal? How much does hard work and luck play in whether we achieve it or not? So I'm a... Maybe, am I a control freak? Let, let, let's, let, let me say I'm a control freak, right? I want to try and manage as many things as I can. Um, and so I know 
that it's hard work that allows me to manage myself uh, and to try and make clear a path, make straight uh, a path, you know, all those types of things. And so if I'm looking at the role of hard work, I think that hard work is always an activity that I can, that I can play and I can actually execute on my own so I can clean my house, you know, really, really well. That's hard work and I can actually do that. I can go to my job and I can sort of sit down and I can sort of learn how to deal with these spreadsheets, which I really don't want to, and these formulas, but, you know, I can learn. I can just put myself through it. I can stay up late at night and do those sorts of things. Um, and that's part of hard work. I can do more sit-ups. I can, you know, do more burpees. That hard work. Um, and I believe that that is something that I can control. If indeed I put in the hard work, when lightning strikes, then, and that's the luck element, I have the ability to actually fully leverage that and exploit it to the maximum. And if indeed I haven't put in the hard work, even when lightning strikes, it's like instead of being the opportunity to catch lightning in a bottle, it's something which burns me to death because I just am not ready for it. I think about Barack Obama and I think about a person who had a fantastic sort of an a early career and then went into obscurity for a long period of time and then lightning strikes. He's in, he, he gets the Democratic um, nomination for, you know, a national position as um, a senator. The, the person who he's running against who has much more money that can outspend him has this fantastic um, sort of um, network he suddenly sort of implodes because of the story, the sex scandal that comes out from his ex-wife. It's just, and it all, it's crazy. Barack has all that he needs in order to take advantage of that situation. His careful preparation, not to, not to let that person stumble, but when that person stumbles, you know, or to make that person stumble, but when that person stumbles, he can step right in there. Mm. And from there, it's opportunity after opportunity hits. And lightning starts to strike more and more. Once you actually are prepared and you can actually make the most of a situation, lightning strikes more and more. I would say probably you've noticed this in your own career, right? You've noticed that maybe the first thing was challenging and getting this podcast and moving up through the ranks of um, the fitness, of fitness and sort of getting in the tech industry was challenging. But then suddenly... Lots of other things. And it's not because you're saying that this is what I want the universe to deliver me. I'm not praying for this at night that it actually happens. Other people are sort of saying, by my partnering with this individual, these sort of things can happen. And those things sometimes probably come to you out of left field. It's like, where did that come from? But because of the preparation that you've done, because of all that hard work, you are able to partner preparation with opportunity or luck. And then you're able to get yourself to a whole nother position. And I think you've noted in your life, and you and, and the fun the good thing about you is you don't note this as something which just you can do. Your view is that this can happen. But again, the preparation is the foundation. Don't do the preparation. You're not Usain Bolt. You're not going to you're not going to win. Lucky that he grew up in um, you know, Jamaica. Lucky he was six foot four, whatever he was, lucky he had the big great turnover in terms of his stride, lucky he had a coach. Those things are all but there's something, there's some work that he did, and then luck starts to hit much more frequently. And then suddenly luck looks just like the pattern of activity for a life. And so that's what I like to believe happened to some people, not all people, but what can happen to all people is hard work can make you better prepared when luck does come, which you can't count on. 
Amen. Amen. <laughs> there we go again. <laughs> exactly. But it's interesting how people who look from the outside will often only see the luck. Mm. So they over, you know, we they never see the, you know, the overnight success. They don't mm. see their decade or two of mm. preparation and hard work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk. Let's talk about the book. I mean, there's so many things mm. that I want to talk to you about, but we have to dive in and talk about the book and firstly the title. So we don't need permission. I want to talk about this word permission. Why do you think that many people of color need to firstly give themselves permission to think bigger, mm -hmm. to have audacious goals, and then to go and exceed even our own expectations? Ooh, so that's big. You know what I think? I think, I, 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 as we've said in this um, podcast, that I grew up in the United States, and anyone who's listening to me can obviously tell that, um, and then I grew up in the South, and I grew up in a Southern family. The thing that even in that sort of world, and you know, you've seen all the images, you've seen dogs and, and you know, sort of turned on protesters, you've seen hoses turned on pro protesters, you've seen the police on horseback beating people, senseless and killing people. And you see that today, um, George Floyd, you see Breonna Taylor, you see all of the ways in which there's this oppression, which actually exists, very um, particular and explicit oppression. The one thing that I noticed when I came to the UK is that I noted that people have so much, people of color have so much ability. Everyone's so well-trained. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about from primary school. We're not talking about, you know, well-trained as you're older and you've gone to, you know, wherever, Bristol, you've gone to Hull, you've, you've gone to Norwich, you've gone to all those sort of places, UCL. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about even before that. There's a manner in which people have a good foundation. It's part of the system here. And because it's a social a social system also, and you have um, ways in which you don't, there are ways to hopefully catch many of us before, even with austerity, there are ways of catching many of us um, before the things just break down completely. So those things are good. The thing that I find fascinating is this sort of internalized perception, and maybe it's because we have a queen here, right? <laughs> and who's, uh, who's been around, and that family has been around for a thousand years. Maybe it's because you know, we are such a small number, 3% of the population is black. There is, in many people's minds, and I think some ways we internalize this as people of color, that there is something good about white supremacy. That in fact, the, what used to be a col what used to be a colony that then turned into a trading area and then turned into a commonwealth is actually the way the world is supposed to be. And that somehow, for God-given reasons or just because they're better than us, that white people, particularly white men, are supposed to be in charge. And the fascinating thing is the way that that gets expressed is people, it's very insidious. Hmm. It's that, you know, when we're voting, uh, first of all, people who, who are voting, who are black and are voting conservative are interesting to me, but I'll let that go for a moment. We won't get into the political <laughs> conversation right now. But, you know, the idea that my class issues and I can buy my way out of oppression, that I can buy my way, if I just get to a certain sort of a level and I have this amount of money, I live in this neighborhood, so if I live in Notting Hill and I drive a Bentley, I am suddenly outside of the category of race and racism. I'm outside of the category of misogyny and um, and sexism. And that we accept that in various ways. So, you know, when I hire someone and I say, who is going to be the best doctor? Who is going to do the best work on my teeth as my dentist? Who is the one who's going to solve my legal problem? Who is the one who's going to run a successful company? Who's the one who's going to return capital for me? And if in our minds, 
we say, who is it? I'm, and I ask people to really think to themselves as they're listening to this, who do you think is going to do all those things? And if your first vision is a white man who can do those things, who's going to run the country well for me? If it's a white guy or a white woman, even in some cases, I would say that's the internalized oppression. And that therefore we end up in a position of always saying, well, I want to get there. I'd like to be like them. That is the, that is the goal. And when I get there, the world to be, I'll be in the promised land. And that's asking for permission. And we ask for permission in many different ways, right? We ask for, can I be in your club? Can I be in your company? Can I be your neighbor? Can you treat, can I buy from your shop? Can I do all of these things? And in my opinion, all of that is a disempowering relationship to the world. And that makes you always looking for, it looks, makes you look for a certain type of affirmation. It makes you look for a certain type of, um, a, a certain type of a circle of influence and power. And I think also it makes you a little bit smaller in terms of your view of self as opposed to a collective. And I think all of those are very, I don't think it's just bad. Let me be clear. I think it's dangerous. I think that if you allow yourself to always be in the hands of someone else in that particular fashion, there is a danger that you will always be a second thought. You will always be patronized, i.e. if it's convenient, if it's interesting, we'll do it. If it's not if important to me for the moment, we're not going to do it. You're always asking for something. You're always going hat in hand for something. You're, always, you're never the agent. You, are, uh, you never have agency. You were never that agent. Instead, you were always the object, something that something is going to be done to. Not even someone that someone's going to be done to, but something that something's going to be done to. And I think that's very dangerous. And we have to get out of that mindset as people of color. Wow. Wow. I mean, this is fascinating. As you're talking, I'm listening. I'm thinking about myself, my own experience, my own internalized, you know, all of that. Listening to, to thinking about friends as well, who, for example, one, I know that her parents, you know, she has Nigerian parents and they were very much, you know, for her and for her siblings it was about her you know them having doing better having more and as you just described like go to that university to get that degree and go and work in this place and if you have that job it's almost like that's enough you know good enough is good enough so I was thinking about that also thinking about another friend of mine who also black woman who's incredibly successful here in the UK mm -hmm. and she and now actually in the US and her and I talk a lot about you know there used to just be the one there could be one woman of color if it was a tv presenting role if it was speaking on a panel role mm -hmm. if it was myself going to you know deliver a keynote on a lineup of speakers there could be one black person and and people saying okay this is not good enough how are we going to change this you know and what's that about but I was also I'll be really honest with you when you're talking it's like as a woman of color, I feel like in so many settings where I have an amazing opportunity or I'm doing something that I feel like is 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 a good thing to be doing, especially within my career as an entrepreneur, I'm grateful for the opportunity. And I know that I say to others, you know, of course, you know, about the ego and like thinking, you know, being grateful to be in the room, being grateful to be on the panel, mm -hmm. being grateful to have the job. And yeah, I'm now questioning and thinking how much of what you said is because as people of color, we are, uh, yeah, I suppose taught that, you know, that yes, there, 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 is, there might be one chair for you. So be grateful that you're the black person who has it, you know, and that's not, that's not okay. And as you said, it's dangerous to think that because of course we all talk about opening the door for others. And especially I'm very, very happy to say that in the network of amazing women of color that I have, we're always doing that mm -hmm. literally, physically, metaphorically opening the door, inviting that person in, 
introducing via email whatsapp groups like you should know this person you should know this person if you're not available for the job suggest your friend and we do that for each other but there's still definitely across so many industries sport media entertainment so much of it is be grateful because there's only one spot for someone black and you are in it (laughs) you you are you are our token black person Mm -hmm. and and often people are told and 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 I think people, some people are flattered by this. You're so different than those other ones, and I am so impatient with people who want to be, you know, black exceptionalism is and black excellence are these sort of phrases that I hear, and I somewhat question. It's like by definition, black people are superheroes. You have survived. We have survived through the centuries. We have survived in these systems that try and erase and eradicate us. It's not just erase, which which sounds benign. That's at least you know something being rubbed against something until it's gone. You know, we have been sort of chased out, sort of unwelcomed. You know, sort of welcomed in, and with if you think about Windrush, and then welcomed back out. It's like there are all sorts of things that are done, and the black people are surviving in those situations. So if you're thinking about who has tenacity to do something, who can make, who can execute like nobody else, a black woman can do that. So any sort of time that you're looking for a person who is going to bring an extraordinary amount to the board or an extraordinary amount to a management team or an extraordinary amount to a, to P&L sort of um, maintenance within an organization, a black woman should be first in your mind. It's very clear to me that that's the answer. But and we talk about this in chapter eight of we don't need permission. What I find very interesting is that so many other people don't necessarily share that view and that even among, and this is what we're talking about, sometimes among black people, we don't even share that view around each other. And that's the, that's a problem. The, the, I wouldn't be where I am today here in the UK. We wouldn't even be talking about this book if it weren't for three black women, black British women. There is Andrea Henry, who's the publisher who bought this book and said, this has to come to trans world and said, we are going to make sure it doesn't go someplace else comes to trans world. There was Natalie Jerome, who's Welsh, you know, a black Welsh woman who said, I'm going to be the agent for this and I'm going to make sure that this gets sold and gets the right home. And then there was the strategist, Eva Simpson, who said, this is what we need to be doing in order to raise awareness and to make sure that that narrative is out there. All of these, so that's who I rely upon to get me a book deal and to get something published by a major publisher here in the UK. It's some black women. It's not as though I said, you know what? There's probably a white guy somewhere who's really going to gain me access. It wouldn't, it, and that is a hard mindset to switch, mm. but that is a mindset that I think we all need to question. I keep on coming back to it and I'm sorry, and we should move on to other topics. I'm confident that you were trying to get me to other topics, but it, it does appear to me that uh, one thing that, uh, is on my mind at least today is that we are as a group we have some agency we have the ability to make choices with our own time with our own money and with our own sort of uh, a set of experiences and our own resources let's make deliberate choices that actually empower us as opposed to ones that disempower us absolutely and we we do have limited time, treasure and talent, and you are a busy person. And honestly, even in your introduction, you know, I, I read your bio, I've done so much research, I could have listed more and more and more and more things. Mm-hmm. So to sit down and to take the time to write a book, I know because I've done it and I'm mm-hmm. gonna be doing it again. It is not an easy task. It is a time intensive, you know, it's a labor of love and it is hard work. So I'd love to know, Eric, with all of the things that you could be doing with your time, mm-hmm. treasure and talent, why did you choose to write this book? And also who did you write it for? 
I decided to write the book. And I'm not a person who ever said, when I was young, I want to write a book. That's not, there. there's so many other things that I believe need to happen and immortalizing uh, some of my thinking into a manuscript that then has to be, because after you've done the, the writing the book in some ways is the easy part, getting someone to read it. It's just, as one of my, as one of my colleagues says, this is just a very glorified, um, placemat or it's just a very glorified coaster unless people actually do something with it so getting the book out is only step one out of yourself is only step one beyond that is how you get people to actually engage with and read and thank you for having me because it allows me to talk a little bit and maybe people hear this and say well there's something that those two were talking about that was prompted by the existence of this written piece of work that means that i should I can gain something from it. And so the people that were really, that I'm hoping will read this are sort of the people I saw yesterday. I went to the Prince's Trust yesterday for a thing called the UK Black Pound Marketplace, where they put a number of people who've come through their enterprise program who've identified as, you know, they're from struggling circumstances and say, I want to start a business. And the Prince's Trust helps them to start a business. They give them mentors and other sorts and all sorts of things and then present them in these uh, quarterly I think they're quarterly marketplaces and they're here in the UK as well as in Birmingham. And the great thing about this is that you're finding people who are aspirational. They have aspirations maybe to have a lifestyle firm just to replace income. So, you know, the average, uh, the the median income for a black business in the UK is 25,000 pounds, meaning they're half, half companies make more, half companies make less. 25,000, that's barely a livable income for London. So you're thinking that's where most companies are very, very small companies. How do we get them to be actually bigger companies and have larger aspirations? But at least these people have started along the path and they actually have businesses. They actually have products. It's no longer, you know, I think that I can do a skincare line. They have a skincare line and it's absolutely fantastic. When you then take that a little bit further and you say, look, what are you going to do next? These are people who don't have, the, the Prince's Trust can get you only so far. Mm. From there, if you really want to then gain capital to be able to expand quickly because you suddenly understand this product that you've created, this new fantastic jerk sauce that you've created, you're gonna need more than the Prince's Trust to help you to get into Morrison's. How do you do that? And so this is a book which helps individuals who don't, you know, who might be saying, should I, change what I'm doing and, and, and get inspired to start a business because I've had some some experience, some lived experience that I think I can then translate into a business. And then from that business, I can build it on my own for a bit before then going external. That's fine. It's for those people, for those people who have a business and are trying to grow and are trying to grow because I'm saying that businesses are the answer to many problems. Black businesses hire black people. Women-led businesses hire women at a disproportionate rate. So if you really want to make something happen, you need to have, you, if, if you have lots and lots of small black businesses and growing black businesses, that is the thing which is going to create more opportunities and more and more communities. So I think that that's great. People who are those kinds of people should also read. But then people, it's really not a how-to book. It's a manifesto that says, if you want to change the world, and if you want to change it for good, meaning forever, as well as and do good things, then you need to think about how we leverage this capitalist system in which we live to get the results that we want. And I point to the example of Elon Musk. How many, how many newspapers around the world are reporting about Elon Musk today? How many world leaders want to get in touch with Elon Musk? How much influence does he have that is based on having a car company that's not the size of 
you know, General Motors. It's a small company, but he has so much opportunity to influence the world and many different parts of the world. If there are a black woman who'd started that company, a black woman from, you know, Southeast London, which I believe she can, that is indeed a game changer for all people. So my purpose in writing this book is to say we need to think more globally and that if we want to make change we can do it within a generation it doesn't take 20 generations in a single generation elon musk has gone from someone you've never heard about to someone you're tired of hearing about and i would love that to happen to someone other than beyonce someone other than jay-z i would like it to happen in a category that then generates sufficient capital, sufficient money to create all sorts of people who are very successful, all sorts of resumes and pedigree that can be taken elsewhere and do all sorts of things. And that becomes a virtuous circle. But we have to have some of those big companies. And there's never been a FTSE 100 company that started by a black person. And there's never been a Fortune 500 company started or run by a black person. That has to change. Yet. Yeah. Yes, Yet. that's exactly yeah. why I'm here. Yet. But we don't need permission to seeking to say, you can do that. That mm. is, there's someone out there who can do it. And when they do it, there'll be another person who can do it. That will propel us all forward and within a generation. And if I could add to that, honestly, reading the book, writing notes, getting that fired up. Like I read a lot of books. I listen to a lot of books on Audible. So people who listen to this show will know because I give book recommendations. You know, on my Instagram stories, I'll say I've just finished this book and this was my key takeaway. I am a sponge when it comes to audio and learning and listening and reading. And I never was at school. Mm -hmm. So I always want people to hear that because it's not like, oh, I was an academic at school. I did not engage in school in that environment, distracted and surrounded by others. If there was anything else to do, anyone else to talk to, I would choose that. So I was not an academic, but as an adult, I found a way of learning, which was audio. And I just consume book after book after book after book. And that also has been my superpower in, in learning and being able to do so many things. So reading your book, Eric, and getting that feeling and that fire in my belly and thinking, actually, Adrienne, when are you going to, you know, I've got ideas, I've got, you know, business idea, this idea, you know, I could start that, I could do this. My time, treasure and talent I give to lots of wonderful organizations, companies, etc. And I really hope that people will, of course, you know, I don't say this about every single book and every single author, but if you're listening to this conversation and you're feeling that feeling, you know what it is because you can't deny it. That feeling in your belly that you can't give to another person, you can't, you know, I wish I could give it to my son. If you have that feeling, then you need to read the book and not just read the book. You know I'm all about taking action. You need to get out a pen and paper. You need to highlight things. You need to write things down. You need to strategize yourself. You need to do the work. And I'm so grateful. Honestly, Eric, I'm so grateful. I, I hope that uh, I'm certainly not gonna waste this energy and this feeling and I'm gonna, um, yeah, start that business. You have a business, right? You have got so you have got a platform which is unmatched and one of those and I think you are actually a roadmap. People should just look at you as a roadmap as to what can be done. If you say that there is a fashion, I mean eventually your roadmap diverges from others because you then have a big huge international sponsor and other sorts of things. So you have done, you know, again you've won the lottery. The luck has hit and you have been able to take advantage of luck. But you start off using a media which is a relatively cheap media in which to get involved. Now it's not cheap to find followers. It's not cheap and it's not easy to get good content that people actually want to listen to and come back to on an ongoing basis. There are millions of podcasts. So people who are listening to you, you have done something that most people will never do. Even without the, even with you have the backing of an organization and a platform and all sorts of things. But many people, that's not where you started. 
need to understand you didn't start there you were able to get there and i'm very and this is the this is the message in we don't need permission it's not that you are going to start at the end it's not you are going to need to take steps but in taking your steps there's one chapter called uh amazon and not thames the thames is a big river and if you're in london you might think of it as being sort of the center of the universe it's relatively small if you look at the amazon so the amazon river so you if you're Frames of reference are going to be very, very local. That's what you're going to have to, that's what you're going to be focused on. And that's how you're going to define success locally and small. There is the ability to expand that. And the way that you have expanded that is through, is through reading. I did it through television. I loved television growing up. I thought, I think my, you know, my, my, my parents would say that I would sit at the television for hours. Many people think it's a terrible thing. I love YouTube. I find the most obscure things and from the most obscure places able to then say, so this was happening in 1960. Tom Jones is singing with Stevie Wonder and Diane Carroll on a television variety show. And this is what he's singing. And I'm sort of like, that's curious. I wonder what this means. And then it just leads me down a whole series. And it's just curiosity. It's just curiosity. And that's, for at least me, it's fun. It's not intimidating. And it is something that can be done in my own way. And it's part of my preparation, right? It's part of that preparation to make sure that when luck, when, when luck hits, when lightning strikes, I'm ready to take it. And many people would say, how would YouTube lead to that? You'd be surprised at the number of conversations I can have where I mention something relatively obscure that I've seen through my own curiosity. And that that can lead me to say, someone else says, oh, well, based on that, maybe we could do the following. And therefore, we have some, we, we're going someplace. Oh my gosh, yes. And signals of change. That's what made me think of because I'm someone who's, you know, I'm often looking future thinking with the work mm -hmm. that I'm doing and innovation. And people say, you know, use, use this word innovation all the time. So if someone says to me, well, what does that mean? What What are you focused on when you talk about innovation within well-being or within technology and fitness? Mm -hmm innovation for me is that signals of change mm -hmm. so if i can see whether it's yeah my 11 year old son and the way that he's searching online what he uses as search he doesn't use google as search he uses youtube as search mm -hmm. somebody else might use tiktok so that's a signal of change there might be another signal of change in the, in the way that your parents maybe they wear a fitness wearable and maybe 10 years ago they would never have even cared about their heart rate or their steps that's a signal of change mm -hmm. maybe signals of change to do with you know post pandemic and the way medicine is going to be distributed there's all these things and it, I, again that word curiosity i love because it doesn't have to be yeah sit down and think of a business plan or come up with the answer but being curious looking at signals of change you can't underestimate how you can be 10 steps ahead of the next person or the next company just by really paying attention to those signals of change talk about the power hour because it's the power hour podcast that i'm sure that i and the listeners would love to hear more from you i could talk to you all day but unfortunately we don't have as much time as i would like so let's talk about the power hour concept the first hour of every single day as i touched on a lot you know waking up in the morning and saying 
what do I want to do today? What's going to motivate me to take action today? Who do I want to help? Who can I learn from? How am I going to spend my time? So Eric, what time do you typically wake up and what does the first hour of your day include? So I wake up first at about six o'clock and depending upon the day, I then make a decision uh, whether or not I would I need more sleep because for me, sleep is the ultimate medicine. It is a thing which allows the body to recuperate and rejuvenate, the brain to slow down, but also the brain to um, sort of solve problems in the subconscious. So I actually, in that first hour, like to have the brain to sort of be whatever it's been doing to then see whether or not I have gotten to some conclusions for some burning, some burning buildings from the day before. So that's what I do. I also have um, a liter, at least a liter of water immediately before I do anything else, a before liter. I get out of bed. I do. That's because, a lot. There it is. But you, if I don't discipline myself to do that to start off the day, then, you know, I, I will drink th water throughout the day, but I think that that is, in addition to sleep, those are things which help in terms of skin, in terms of all your system. So I do all of that first. Eric has great skin. <laughs> Thank you. I'm looking at it right Thank now. You. And, and you know what? I don't then immediately turn on the computer. I don't wake up to an alarm. I wake up naturally. I, I, I decided some time ago that my subconscious, I don't know how I got to this conclusion, but could wake me up in time to get to my appointments. And so I just wake up. I never use an alarm unless it's a very odd hour. So I have to get to the airport yeah. and I have to wake up at three o'clock in order to get to the airport for a six o'clock flight. Then I might use an alarm. But other than that, I try and just wake up naturally. But the first thing that I always do is to try and sort of assess in my head what were the burning platforms from yesterday? Did I get any solutions in my sleep? And if so, make sure that I get those noted, have the water, and then I can go from there. Mm. The, before turning on the computer, before turning on the, the you know, and looking at uh, the cell phone, I try and do those sorts of things. Then I look at the cell phone, and then I look at the computer. That that would be the, the approach that I take because I think of the cell phone as being a more personal thing. And so, therefore, those are likely to be notes for my family who are who still live in the United States or friends in the United States that came after hours. So that's nice to see and to see whether there are any emergencies there as I have eld, um, aging parents. And then from there to look to see if there are any emergencies that happened um, in the business. And then from there, as you can see, I'm talking about emergency all the time because I mm. actually do believe that prioritizing yourself according to not just the things which are strategic and, and ongoing, but the things that you can actually deal with immediately so that then they don't become bigger fires that you have to deal with later. I like to deal with things that way because I have to manage a number of products, a number of companies, a number of colleagues, mm. and I'm managing other people's money. So, yeah. you know, you want to make sure that you don't let fires really happen. Mm. And it's well, and it's good to hear that. Yeah, with that in mind, you still, because a lot of people will say the first thing they do is reach for the phone. And if that is their alarm, mm -hmm. they'll say, oh, I'm sucked in straight away to mm -hmm. social media or emails or WhatsApp messages because, you know, it might be urgent. But as you mm -hmm. said, no matter how big the urgent or the emergency is, you know, allowing yourself to have that moment first, whether it is like me, a whole hour dedicated to this or whether it's 10 minutes, those emergencies, those urgent, the urgency of the world, especially the modern world, everything is urgent everything is urgent and everyone's priorities are their you know their version of urgent becomes your version of urgent so i think i hope people will hear that that even for busy important people like yourself you, you can make time to start with the self you know to drink the water to download the thoughts from your mind before you have to dive into emails and then you go and then you try and get all of this done within 20 minutes and then get out to the gym yes. that's the other thing because i think that's also very important if you are 
a black man in the UK, the likelihood that you are going to um, die much earlier than your your white peers, it's, you're going to, you have um, the life expectancy is much shorter, you know, you know, seven or eight years shorter. And then the things that are likely going to impact you, which are also based on some underlying conditions, it's very important that we take care of ourselves. So I actually do believe in going to the gym and spending some time, not just trying to get an, uh, you know, an upper body and to get, you know, some, some guns, but to actually do some cardio, to do some stretching so I can actually move and pick up something without my back going out to do some core work so that I can actually sort of hold. And then also most importantly, to make sure that, uh, as I say, I'd like to be able to stand up by myself from the toilet when I am 70 years old and 80 years old. So I'd like to be able to do that comfortably. So some of those sorts of things, which are just preventative and trying to put some some um, muscle memory in the bank for later mm-hmm. on, because I, I intend to be here. So let's, oh, I'm let's, sure let's make it pleasant. Will. Thank you so much, Eric. Honestly, there's so much that we didn't get to today. So hopefully one day we'll be able to, I'd love to have you back and to, to do a deeper dive. You know, some of the stats in the book, particularly in chapter eight, you know, the stats don't lie and then they need to change. So firstly, thank you for me, for, for being here, for giving us your time. Thank you for the listeners. I really hope that you've enjoyed this episode and that you will, of course, hear Eric's words, take the encouragement, take the energy and do not waste it. Take action. Of course, read the book, download the book, listen to the book. And finally, Eric, where can people follow your work, find out more, reach out if they want to, if they've listened to this conversation and they just want to find out more and dive in deep, where should they go? So you can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram. The place that I spend the most time in social media is actually a business channel. So LinkedIn. So it's hard to connect with me, but it's easy to follow me. So the people can follow me there, and that's where I really do post uh, information about what's going on. Right now, um, with the publication of We Don't Need Permission, we actually launched last night a competition where we're looking for the best business plan. And so we're asking people to record a pitch, and you can find it on, on all those socials, and you can we're asking people to record a pitch, and that pitch is about 45 seconds. Tell us about that business, and, tell, and then we want people to vote for you from your own social network, and people who have the highest votes are the ones that we'll then take to a next, a next round, and then we'll be able to choose someone who will actually get some time with my network. We are going to sort of put together a panel to try and address your issue and figure out how we can help you to get to the next level because all it is in terms of building one a business from one size to another is going from milestone to milestone one level to another and then continuing because at each one of those milestones will be new people or new organizations that are interested in you and often those are investors and so we're trying to help people to get to those places and make bigger businesses just like it says in the book wow do not waste it if you are one of those people who's going to enter then do not postpone do it today do it right now do it today and if you know someone else who you think oh you know what yeah my friend should do that or my sister should do please encourage them and make them take action thank you so much eric thank you very much adrian